Hey everyone, the following podcast is part one of Ivan's talk with Dr. John Kiley. Dr. Kiley is the senior lecturer in elite performance at the UCLAN Coaching and Performance Institute. Part one covers all things periodization. Enjoy. What's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in to the Athletic Lab Audio Inventory. to Athletic Lab Sport Performance Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. John Kiley. So welcome to the podcast, John. Hi, Ivan. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem, mate. My pleasure. Uh, so before we start, can you please tell us a little bit about your background, your education, your experience, and what are you currently doing? Uh, sure. Well, uh, I guess background, if you go back far enough, uh, like many of your listeners, I was a hard training athlete, making mistakes, mm-hmm. trying to get ahead, <laughs> training too hard, you know, all those those, those type of things. So uh, my background was predominantly in combat sports. So mm-hmm. uh, I would have been an international representative in kickboxing and Thai boxing mm-hmm. and then and then boxing as normal boxing as well. Uh which was by far and away the hardest of the three. <laughs> so even though people don't normally think that, but it was uh, just the level, the standards were, were a lot higher. Um, so that was my, my training background. I, I was coaching pretty young, you know, maybe 21, 22. Uh, I was coaching, but again, a technical coach in, in uh, kickboxing and, and then subsequently in boxing. Uh, and I still... You know, for the past 25 years, I've, I've been I've been a an everyday boxing coach. Uh, it's kind of down to once a week now, and it's it's mostly kids, and it's just helping out with the club that I used to box for. And mm-hmm. yeah, but it, uh, it's good. It, uh, it it keeps me grounded and doesn't let me get too uh, ahead of myself. Right. So, so so that's kind of my own sporting background. Um, I guess again, uh, I, I did sports science, but I did sports science kind of in my mid twenties. Uh, I started off and I, I qualified as a coach. I qualified as a gym instructor. I worked the gyms. I, mm-hmm. you know, just that kind of, um, I guess, deep practical experience. Uh, and then, when I was around twenty five, twenty six, uh, I thought I have a go at this thing called sports science and uh, did a degree there came out of that got a job within the the Irish sporting system uh, very luckily uh, working with elite athletes in that system around 2001 I went to Edinburgh to do a master's in strength and conditioning did that back to Ireland uh, had a, kind of a, a portfolio of jobs uh, I worked with Monster Rugby as a, a power uh, consultant, power training consultant. I was the SNC for Irish athletics, Irish Paralympics, Irish rowing, uh, and a couple of other orga- organisations like that. So it was it was quite a, a mixed, brief, uh, and a lot of, a lot of different experiences, which I think really helped uh, and and does continue to help to this day. Right. Uh, Two thousand and four, uh, I was at the Paralympics as a coach. 2005, I was at the Paralympic World Championships and 
somebody mentioned to me one of the British teams said there was a job coming up as the head S&C for UK Athletics maybe it's fly so I applied for that ended up getting that job and then spent a few years working with uh, GB track and field mm-hmm. which was again phenomenal experience phenomenal athletes some phenomenal staff uh, so just a great learning experience um, yeah so my, my brief was pretty much oversee what was being done with the kind of top 15 podium hopes for for Beijing and then to work with a couple of the key athletes myself uh, on a kind of weekly day-to-day basis so what I ended up doing was working predominantly with the those athletes who were realistic podium hopes but had a history of injury so uh, I guess what you'd call certainly from an S&C perspective interesting but also challenging and we had a couple of great successes uh, and then we had a couple of failures as well but again a really really good learning experience Uh, fast forward from there and then around 2011 uh, I was living I've been living in Britain for for six six years or so I wanted to move back to Ireland my partner was back here uh, so I was looking for a job where I could uh, stay working kind of in the British system, but I could live in Ireland. So mm-hmm. a, a university came in and offered me a job where I could pretty much work from the room I'm in now on Skype as I am now mm-hmm. and just pop over and back to the UK when when needed. So I work in a university, but I don't lecture. I work with professional doctorate students who are people kind of like yourself. They're out in the sports world. They're really interested in pushing boundaries. They want to do some significant type of professional development, have ideas, not sure what to do, maybe don't want to be too academic. And what we do is we, we uh, take those practical questions, uh, we formulate them in a way that, that they can um, investigate the value of their ideas and document them and, and they get a professional doctorate for that. So it's the same level as a PhD as regards uh, academic credit, but more practically focused. So so that's really interesting. I work with uh, people in professional football, professional rugby, all kinds of sports, as well as uh, military, both physios and uh, uh, physical trainers. So yeah, so that's really interesting. So. Just my last bit, just to bring us up to date. Um, one of the, I guess, the, the conditions of, of my job was that I could continue to contract out to, to sport, you know, to, to, to work on a practical day-to-day basis with athletes. So um, in 2013, I did a lot of work with Laura Massaro, who was the world squash champion that year, British Open champion, fantastic, fantastic athlete. Uh, really did we, I, I think we did a lot of good work together and uh, really enjoyed that 2014 um, Irish Rugby asked me to work with them during Six Nations competitions so I worked the Six Nations 2014, 2015, 2016 and I went to the 2015 World Cup with them and again phenomenal experience phenomenal athletes and, and great backroom staff so again just a really good learning experience uh, and a different environment uh, this year then I, I know we, we, we talked uh, just before we came on I, I go to training camp with uh, the Egyptian football team next week 
in the run-up to the World Cup in Russia in June, and then I'll go into Russia with them in June. Uh, and that's pretty much where I am. So I guess on top of all that, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a bit of writing when I, when I can, try to exercise my brain, and um, yeah, trying to keep my hand in and on the practical front as well. Awesome. Such a huge background and a huge amount of things that are you're doing right now and, and that you're going pro and then you are probably going to do in the future. Uh, well, I hope so, but <laughs> I wouldn't take anything for granted. <laughs> <laughs> okay, John. So obviously, we are going to talk a lot about periodization today. So please, can we start with what periodization really is, and can we strictly define it at all? Oh, I mean, that's a great question, and I think it, it will set up the rest of the conversation because periodization, when it it kind of at least came into the, the Western consciousness, was a form of planning that was, I would say, re pretty rigidly defined within the Soviet Union in terms of it was segmented, mm -hmm. it was it was sequential, it was modular in the sense of you did this, and then you did this, and hmm. then you did this. So it was, it, yeah, it depends what you want to call periodization. If you're going by the original definition, then it is that very modular, very pre-planned, uh, very segmented, very sequential approach. Mm -hmm. um, and again, if you look at the definitions provided by uh, the vast majority of the the, the major theorists from the old Soviet Union, it was it was it was along those lines. You know, they would all have different ways of fra framing it, but it was pretty much, yeah, it was very much, I think, a yeah, modular, pre-planned, break it into chunks. And again, I think that if we go back to the roots of periodization, uh, as much as you can, because they're they're entangled. And different people said different things at different times. But the main influence, and I guess the, the person most associated with the early concepts of periodization within the Western world was Leonid Matveev. So what Matveev did in, you know, uh, he took a lot of data. The Soviet Union, one of the things it did well was it collected data. He took data from three sports. Uh, weightlifting was one, I think cycling and either swimming or running. I can't remember off the top of my head, but three sports. Mm -hmm. uh, crunched a lot of data, figured out, well, these were the successful athletes. These were the time frames and pretty much did a, a mathematical exercise, averaged everything up and, and came up with, here's the best template based on all these data, different sports, different athletes and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Yeah, so when when Matthew's ideas kind of hit, and like the first English translation of, of his core text, The Fundamentals of Sports Training, came out in, I think, maybe 1980, maybe 8081, maybe. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever tried to read it, but I mean, I have it. I have it for 20 years, and it is practically impossible to read. <laughs> it, uh, I mean, it, it, I, I'm certainly not... Uh, criticizing Matthew, it could have been the translation, but it's the kind of text you can read and get the different it. message from. You can take what you want in yeah. a sense, very much, and it is 
it's so often it's cited as a scientific basis for what we do planning wise but in in no way i would say is it scientific or if you wanted to be generous you would say it well it tried to be scientific but through a very old lens so in other words it was looking at the world through a very mechanistic very direct cause and effect lens mm-hmm. and i think if we are in any way objective in you know that approach is should be long gone i mean that's not the way our biology works that's where that's not the way our neurology works we are not machines not by a long long shot now i guess the last interesting thing to say about the evolution of periodization is that i think the social social ideas on planning really influential in periodization we think of periodization as something that evolved from coaching practice and sports science mm, right but another way of looking at it is if you step back you just think well this is exactly the same type of planning as, that was going on in the the 20s and 30s in you know uh for example soviet union had its five-year plans uh china had its great leap forwards and all of these you know ford had his um production line they were all manifestations of the same ideas of planning it's you break it down and then you know you exert control over what you can control and you do this and then you do this and that will lead to this and then you do that and that's the most effective way of doing it mm-hmm. uh, and you know I, I wrote previously about a guy called frederick winslow taylor who kind of pioneered prior in motion um, time in motion studies and his work had a great effect certainly on um uh, lenin at the time and and, uh, and other go- governmental agencies but i think the error they made was they took something that worked in a simple machine shop environment where you're working on simple projects mm-hmm. they, and they applied the same logic to hugely complex projects <laughs> and the result was crazy inefficiency just absolutely you know really short-sightedness um errors that in some cases cost you know millions of lives or millions of of uh, pounds or whatever the currency was but again it was this application of simple planning simple something that worked in a simple scenario and apply that to a complex scenario so I think that that has to be there as the backdrop of then the the coaches and the scientists of the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. This was their backdrop. This is the way they've nearly been educated. Mm -hmm. I expect these are the rules that good planning follows. So what we need to do is now let's put training into this same type of template. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the two, Winslow Taylor's Time of Motion, uh, maps pretty well to early concepts of periodization, certainly as they were presented in the 80s, 90s, you know, uh, and well into the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, John, why we have a problem of getting back to the history and checking the rationale behind some concepts and quote-unquote truths, uh, because I think that most of them do not stand anymore. Can you please expand on path-dependent concept that you wrote about? 
Well, the the path dependence concept is uh, something that I came across. Uh, there's, there's a linguistics professor um, in uh, I forget where in the states, but a, a guy called John McWerther, and he wrote about it on a, a site called TheEdge.com. It's run by this kind of joint brain philanthropist entrepreneur guy called John Brockman, and. He's kind of one of these U.S. West Coast intellectuals that was an early adapter of kind of Internet technology and so on. So every year he asks all these other joint brains uh, a, a pretty straightforward question. And then he he publishes them on his site, you know, their answers. He publishes them on his site. Uh, and every now and again, he brings out a little book of them. And I don't know how I came across, but I came across this John McWerther talks about. And I think the question was, what is the single concept that you think, if everyone knew about, would, would change their perspective? Mm-hmm. I, I don't have the wording of it exactly right, but that was the nature of the question. Mm-hmm. So Mark Werther writes about path dependence. And essentially, the, the whole premise behind path dependence is we think if, we ha- if we're presented with a problem now that we solve it through first principles. In other words, we, we look at it with a really open mind and we say, well, this is my solution. But what Pat Dependent says is, well, actually, we don't look at problems with an open mind necessarily. We look at them through the lens of how we might have solved similar problems, pre- pre- previous similar problems in the past. Now, the classic example and the example Mike Werther uses is the QWERTY keyboard uh, and everyone probably knows the story at, at this stage but you know when QWERTY the reason the keyboard is arranged like that was to separate the most commonly used letters mm-hmm. so if you struck them in close sequence really quick there wasn't a mechanical jam you know the little typewriter arm would come up go down right. you're typing slow it's fine you're typing really quick and it jams so, in a sense, QWERTY was making it a little bit more awkward to type. So it slowed you up a fraction, and that stopped mechanical jamming. Now, the reason why that's an example of path dependence is after the mechanical constraint vanished, the solution to that previous problem persisted. Mm-hmm. still persist, persists and I, I'm looking at my laptop now and I'm looking at QWERTY <laughs> obviously it would, it would take way too much to change it now and we're all used to it and, and so on but it's just an example of how the legacy of something that was appropriate at some distant time in the past that that legacy persists and exerts an influence on how we think and how we solve problems. Mm-hmm. So, and sometimes that influence is unquestioned. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess that's the whole thing. And that was the whole point for me of of raising that illustration and in, in, in that periodization piece I wrote was just, you know, sometimes we get into these arguments and these battles about periodization good, periodization bad, or this planning or that planning. And I'm thinking... That, that is not the point. The whole point. The whole point is, I think, when we when we need to plan for it for it, for a team or for, or for individual athletes, 
we need to look at it as a unique situation and not just re-employ solutions that we used in the past. Right. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, of course, yeah. of course. Now, and I, but I think that the thing is that we all think we do that anyway, but sometimes it, it nearly takes an extra little bit of effort to kind of to push back and say, mm, hang on. Let's yeah. not yeah. let's not just fall into this routine. Let's not just do okay, we start here and we're gonna use four weeks and you know, three weeks hard, one week easier, whatever it is. Let's think what is the best context specific solution that I can find mm-hmm. for this particular job or this particular team. And I think that yeah, and again, that was my whole reason for using the path dependent uh, illustration. It's that how much of our thinking is kind of running along tracks that that we haven't created, that were created for us by history, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So so that was my contention that hey, don't get me wrong. I love reading what the old coaches did and some of them were so intuitive and so insightful without all the advantages of technology and, and the scientific advances, advances that we've had. But at the same time, we need to sift through our traditions to find what works now in this, through the lens of our current world worldview, rather than just unquestioningly accepting the legacy of what those that came before us did. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, going back to the periodization, uh, when I was an undergrad student, uh, we had one subject at, at our faculty that was called, and probably still is, training theory and, and methodology that was heavily influenced by Tudor Bompa. And basically, a professor would ask you to develop, on exam, obviously, uh, the professor would, would ask you to develop a certain training plan uh, for an athlete from a different sports or disciplines. Uh, or, or even worse, uh, to design a half year or or a one year plan for a team. Uh, so you 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 had you had to say when would you develop certain ability and why. So in a sense, you would have to put everything in order. No one taught us how to deal with chaos, how to deal with uncertainties that are you know in the real world settings uh, present all the time. So please. I think that stress is really important over there, and uh, um, stress, uh, training stress, life stress, and everything uh, related to stress. So, because you wrote a lot about it, can you give us a, a brief history of stress, and what problems can we find in the early research on stress? Basically, how it all started, and how is it related to periodization? Okay, so... All right, that's that's a big question. So let me see. Yeah. So all right. So everybody who ever read anything about periodization has come across the name Hans Selye. He's mentioned in you know pretty much all the major periodization works. Now, Selye is also known, or you know, he's primarily known as the the, the father of stress of the, of the science of stress. Um, Selly was a medical doctor and uh, he kind of moved from Europe to 
Canada in the 1930s, early 30s, was looking for something to research. People had just discovered uh, cortisol. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, well, it was corticosterone in, um, in, in rats, in, in other mammals, but the equivalent of cortisol in humans. So, um, yeah, he started studying that. So basically, his job was to be nasty to rats and see what happened. Uh, so he didn't set out to do that, but what he set out to do was um, he would inject them with this hormone and then others he wouldn't inject, or sorry, he wouldn't inject the active hormone. He would inject the placebo, you know, sorry, not placebo, but uh, an inert substance. Mm-hmm. Uh but yet he found at the, you know, towards the end of his studies, after his two or three months or whatever it was, all the rats were kind of ragged. They were all losing hair and they were all unhealthy. And and eventually he kind of figured out, because that, that was bad news for him, right? Because he wanted the experimental group to demonstrate big changes in something and the, and the, the control group not to change it at all. But, but they were both in poor health. So... Uh, Eventually, he figured out, well, actually, maybe the problem with the control group that every day he was chasing them around the lab and jabbing them with this giant needle. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe there was something else going on. Maybe it was the physical uh, stress of being chased around and then getting severely hurt by this, you know, joint person and then thrown throw back in the cave. Uh, cage. So... Uh, over time, he, he's, the experiments can be a bit more uh, refined, and what he would do is he'd get he'd get rats and he'd put them up on the on the roof over the you know the ice cold winter in Canada. Other rats he'd get and he'd put in a, a kind of a in in the boiler room, so it was really ro- roasting hot twenty four seven all season. Um, he'd get them to run on treadmills, you know, and until they collapsed or couldn't run anymore, and he did all these kind of things, and then. His measurement tool was really blunt. What he would do is he would sacrifice the rats at the end of the study, uh, take out a couple of glands, ground do, grind those glands up, and then weigh them. Uh, and what he found that you know certain glands were increasing dramatically in size. Uh, and, and to cut a long story short, regardless of whether he froze the rats or heated them or exercised them or just chased them around the room and stuck them with needles, they all demonstrated the same symptoms. So that's where he came up with this thought of, this is a general adaptive syndrome, mm-hmm. you know, digitalis. And again, that's the other, that's mentioned to this day, is mentioned in all the, the periodization uh, reviews that you see. Now, Celia himself never thought about sports, uh, at least in the context of stress. And again, there's a in in the late I'm sorry, in the early eighties, not long before he he died, uh, there was a, a great Australian swim coach called Forbes Carlyle who brought him to Australia and got him to present. Mm-hmm. And and Carlyle wrote about it afterwards and said that you know before Celia presented, he said that I I've never thought about the influence of stress on you know on in sporting context. So. You know, he, 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 this wasn't in his um, window at all. Um, so, okay, so what we have is, we've Celia looking at the physical consequences of stress. 
And again, it's just probably important to note that what Sally did was he applied a physical stress mm-hmm. uh, and measured the physical consequences. And again, another quote from him in his book, I think 1983, uh, The Stress of Life. Uh, he said, you know, he looked on stress as a what he called a medical condition, meaning a physical condition. Um, so in other words, he, he acknowledged that psychology predispositions could influence it, but he primarily saw stress as physical stress, physical consequence. Mm-hmm. Now, again, he, he worked in this field for 60 years. So his, his views were, 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 were not that poorly informed, really, by today's standard. But the important thing is that he, the work that he did in the first, you know, up until 1956, when he published his paper on general adaptation syndrome, it's his work from the mid-30s to the mid-50s, <coughs> excuse me, that the sports world jumped on. Mm-hmm. It wasn't any of the later work where he kind of, he added some subtlety to his paradigm. It was the early work where it was really blunt. Mm-hmm. I, I hope I haven't uh, gone off on too much of a tangent there, but just to cut to the, the sharp end of this, by the 1950s, uh, people in sport were starting to pay attention to this because they wanted to know how to manage athletes. And all of a sudden there was this uh, guy, this scientist in a white coat who was saying that, you know what, everyone responds pretty much, he wasn't saying everyone, he was saying every rat responds pretty much the same according to the general adaptation syndrome. You apply physical stress and what happens then is you get a little bit of a dip in uh, whatever measure you're at, but then it bounces back and it super compensates. And it's, it's pretty much the same in everyone. And this trajectory of adaptation is the same in, in, in all the rats. It's a general adaptation syndrome. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, what that did, in a sense, it was saying to people who were trying to plan, you know, professional sport was just kind of that wave was just breaking. And now we've lots of time to train. How, how do we fill it up? And that cell is theory of general adaptation syndrome seems to have been used as evidence that, well, you know what, we all adapt pretty much the same way. So by extension, we can plan pretty much the same way. Uh, and then that's kind of what we did. You, you marry in what we talked about earlier in terms of you get this cultural, this worldwide cultural planning paradigm that's very much uh, segregated, segmented, pre-planned. You put the two of those things together. Uh, you put in, you add in some training data, a la Matviev, and you pretty much have periodization right there. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, as you know, different theorists, predominantly ex-Soviet Union. Um, Kuchansky, Bamba, etc., etc., um, came in and everyone had their own flavor. But, but it seemed to me at least that they were still sticking to the same fundamental principles, still sticking to 
hey, you know what? At the back of our minds, even though we're not saying it, at the back of our mind is this path-dependent belief that people respond in pretty much the same way within the same time frames to an, an, uh, an imposed physiological stress. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen. That's, you know, you know, if we look at contemporary evidence, you think, well, actually, that's not the case. So, and again, back to path dependence, what, what I see when I look at all that is, you know, we, we took the information that was available to us in kind of the mid-50s. We put it together in a, what was a sensible way in, in terms of it fitted in with the, the cultural paradigm for planning and so on. Uh, and we got we got periodization out the other end. Right. And we've been justifying it. We've been justifying it to ourselves ever since. But but hang on, maybe it's a path dependent phenomenon. So shouldn't we investigate its roots? Shouldn't we go back and look at it now? Shouldn't we see what if Celia's theories, a la nineteen fifty six, if they still hold up? And you look at the you 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 go and you know you take take a deep dive a, a, a deep dive into contemporary stress theory and no they don't hold up not by a long shot Mm -hmm. so so yeah so from that perspective what do we do do we need to reevaluate or are we too emotionally tied to you know the the planning paradigm that we grew up with Are, are we too emotionally attached to that to to kind of have the nuts to go actually Maybe that doesn't work. Maybe I need to reevaluate this. Maybe I need to build in some new kind of new way of thinking about this problem. Right. I mean, uh, going back to what I said about my uh, undergrad ex- experience with periodization, you know, I was always uh, against that somehow. You know, even I didn't have a, a lot of experience, at least practical experience. I was always sweating when I was designing a training plan because I was like there's so much variables that are influencing my decision what I'm going to do and no one asked me for context I think that's because of people like simple solutions you know and even if we are dealing with a complex problem they are still they still want to have a simple solution direct solution and like you said Path dependence is the key here, I think, uh, because, you know, we got a simple solution from some research and we tried to incorporate that solution into sports uh, and we had some success and that afterwards it con- uh, it continued to, to nowadays, okay? So now we are still dealing with that problems on the same way, like we used to 50 years ago or more. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that human nature is obviously at the root of this and at the root of everything, that, that all, all our kind of conventional paradigms and the desire to reduce doubt, to reduce what psychologists would call cognitive dissonance, that feeling of, oh, I'm not sure what to do here. And we all instinctively want to reduce that. And I think that's what periodization did really well. It, it kind of presented people with uh, a planning temp- te- template that fitted in with cultural perceptions of what planning should look like. Mm-hmm. It fit, fitted in with the kind of the very uh, 
blunt scientific lens that was applied to it. And uh, then there was some really, <laughs> there was some scientific kind of magic tricks that people played. Um, if you look, for example, I, I think this is a really good example, but there's a number, there's at least three different uh, periodization theorists. There's certainly Verkashansky, certainly Matfiev, and I think Zatsyarsky as well. Mm -hmm. all, they all came up with uh, the best time frame for a, a microcycle is four weeks. Uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe not. But they all, they, they, all, they all came up with four weeks and they all came up with completely different explanations as to why it should be four weeks. Right. Um, and they were all kind of really, really pseudo-scientific. It's to do with the, the half-life of training evolution. <laughs> you know, I work for university. I do have no idea what that is. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I forget the other two. I don't have them on the top of my head, but they were similar. It was pseudo-scientific terminology and, hey, you know what? Because it's coming from the periodization guru, that's science. So I, I I don't need to think about it. It's closed off. Four four weeks is the best. So I think there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that search for simple solutions. Now, for me, I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with simple solutions. And I actually think that what we should be striving towards with training planning, training manage, management, training modulation, is trying to find a simple what's kind of nearly the simplest unit of information that I can get, the simplest unit of useful information that I can get that adds insight, that allows me to make the decisions I need to make on an ongoing basis to make sure that this training is, one, optimally, uh, positively adaptive, and two, doesn't pose an injury risk. So it's for, for, for me, you know, if I'm sitting down to plan, it's like, what are the simple guidelines that we can put in place? Mm -hmm. um, now, my guidelines are, are very different to the traditional periodization guidelines, which were, again, very mechanical. It was all about, it was nearly always this quest for the best program. And there is a best program. And only I can find the answer to this best program. And then the program is specked out in sets and reps and times and how often and and so on it's specked out empirically it's it's written down in numbers effectively um i you know i i don't buy that i think a fundamental a fundamental shaping factor for any athlete program should be what does the athlete think thinks, what does the athlete believe believes will work for them mm -hmm. what, what have they done in the past how do they respond? Is there any way that we can uh, check our work in, in terms of with the program that we devise? Where do we think the athlete will be in four weeks? Can we check that? Mm -hmm. so if we don't build in kind of checks and balances, then our own thoughts can run away with ourselves and we can fall victim to confirmation bias where I see what I want to see. Mm -hmm. I think my program is good. So if the athlete performs better, it was because of my program. I think my program is good, but if the athlete performs worse, well, it was something the athlete did. So it's kind of we wrap, right. we wrap, right. our, we wrap our dearly held beliefs, we wrap them in this kind of, in, in Teflon, and all criticism, you know, shit doesn't stick to it. 
everything bounces off it. And it's so easy to do that. And we do it so reflexively as humans that I think a first step is, a first step for me is always you need to push back. And it's humility and it is, hey, you know, uh, small brain, little time, I'm not going to get this perfectly right. What's, What's the improvements that I can make now? And then how do I track those improvements and how can I tweak them as, as we, we move along? Mm-hmm. Um, now, so I think there's a lot of pushback to these type of ideas, which is perfectly understandable because the where we are at the moment is, is it's kind of in a, the edge of chaos. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenon in a state of flux. So, and always when you have, change is challenging. So there's going to be some of us who take the changes too far and again go beyond the science and go beyond the practical experience and just start making crap up, who push this too far. Then there's going to be some at the other end of the spectrum that are too, that just just will adhere too rigidly to to past beliefs. Mm You know, most of us will sit in the middle. We'll say, yeah, you know what? That new idea makes sense, but this one doesn't. And I like to stick to it. I like to do four weeks. It works for me. And for me, I think that's perfectly fine. I think that's what we all have to do as individuals. But, you know, we we all have to filter all of this, all of the messages we get from both the science and from the elite coaches and from training tradition and coaching courses. We need to filter all, all of that through our own philosophy. But what we do have a responsibility to do is we need to make that philosophy uh, robust. In other words, we need to think through, think through the hard problems. Um, and I think that that's maybe if I was to drill down to the very core of my issue with periodization, it's the fact that it gave us a ready-made solution and say, effectively said, switch off your brain. This is a solved problem. And I think that's dangerous. And I think that reduces our effectiveness as practitioners. I think, in a sense, it is better, even though it's uncomfortable from a cognitive perspective, it is better to have, uh, in, a, in an unknown territory, it's better to have no map than a fictional map, uh, would be my perspective. Awesome. So to wrap this up, um, please, can you tell us where can people find you, John, on the social media and uh, or whatever account that you have online? Where can people check your work? Uh, so uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at simply sports Um and yeah, I, I uh, I'm a little bit in, infrequent on there at the moment, but uh, yeah, I, I I am on that and I enjoy. Uh, networking on Twitter, uh, so that so so that's probably the best place to reach me. Uh, my I'm happy to give out my email. It's jkiley at uclan.ac.uk. If anyone has any kind of thoughts, questions, comments, criticisms, mm-hmm. it's all good. Uh, please send it on. Uh, great. Uh, I really appreciate your time here and it was awesome conversation with you and uh, I'm really looking forward to the part two with the practical application with all of the, with all of these stuff that we covered in this 45 minutes. Uh, 
my my pleasure yeah. i i've uh, enjoyed the conversation as well all right guys that's it thanks for listening if you like this you can rate us you can share this with your friends and if you have a question go to facebook instagram twitter anchor anywhere you can find us drop us a dm and we'll try to answer it when we can